So let's take a look at number four on our list here of the regathering. This movement or this return to the land, I call it immigration, and you have waves of immigration. Aliyah is the Hebrew word to return back to the land. And let's begin by looking at this Zionist movement, and I've got kind of the history outlined here. We mentioned from about 1445, we have continuous occupation. And at this point, just small communities in different spots in the land. In the 1860s, the first neighborhood in the land was basically established or built where Jews gathered together. And it was built outside of the walls of Jerusalem, the present-day walls, outside the what's called the old city today. First neighborhood. In 1882 to 1903, we have the first organized immigration. So that's pretty important in the timeline here. Where from? Most of these were from Russia. 25,000 Jews resettled in the land, primarily from Russia, but some from other places. Well, uh, living in, in, in Eastern Europe and Moldova, it was, it was a satellite of the Soviet Union, one of the republics. And in, in 1903, they, they, 50% of the capital city was Jewish, and they started a pogrom in Chisinau, uh, in, in the capital city of Moldova. Okay. And this was you know, pre-Soviet wow. Union, but I mean, Great. This, this, the city was growing, it was awesome. Predominantly Jewish. And 50% of the city was, in, you know, all of the major things. And then in 1903, they started um, a pogrom in the city. And, and it got down to like um, under five percent. Wow, uh, were Jewish, but it, they were part of that that immigration of right. They were fleeing. So it's not only Russia, but that whole that whole area. Block. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah, you probably have more information than I do. Yeah, feel free to jump in. In 1897, we have the first Zionist Congress, and a very important figure is Theodore Herzl. In fact, when I was there last May, I visited his grave. They have kind of a monument in his grave and Mount Herzl, they call right in Jerusalem. He's very important in this later Jewish history. From Switzerland, he organized the, the Congress, wrote some pamphlets, and basically kicked off this Zionist Zionist movement. He was Austrian. I'm not sure where the Congress was. Probably, oh, it was in Basel, Switzerland. He was from Austria. Published a pamphlet, The Jewish State. After that, Zionist groups sprang up all over the world with the same same vision, same desire. In 1909, there were enough Jews that they founded the city of Tel Aviv, where a large number of them lived. And that's the date of the founding of Tel Aviv. Before the Jews, it was nothing but a desert, uninhabitable, actually. The 1445 date, all the way up to 1860, you said continuous occupation. Does that mean, so it was just Jews here and there? Here and there. Here and there. there, Anybody here and there. No organization until we have first neighborhood, first immigration, etc. And then a Zionist movement. And just some photographs. This is Tel Aviv today, essentially. Uninhabitable desert turns into... <laughs> in fact, this is the largest concentration of Jews in the world, Tel Aviv. New York used to be, but <laughs> Tel Aviv has overtaken it. In fact, I'm going to give you some numbers on that as well. Jaffa or Jaffa is this little part in here that's mentioned in the New Testament. 
Peter was there when he saw the vision of the uh, sheet coming down of unclean animals. Mm-hmm. And then he was called to Caesarea up the coast. That's where he was. But anyway, Tel Aviv has grown around that site. Sheila? <laughs> Thank you. I was wondering if that area that they developed outside the did it remain to, yeah. to this day? Yeah, to this day. Right. There's a close-up of sometimes it's spelled Jaffa in the Bible, in the New Testament, or Jaffa, modern day. It's a little part there. From that same site, looking north, this is what the city skyline looks like. So very modern. Take that? Yeah, I didn't no, take that one. Like, yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's where on my trip we're going to fly into. Y'all are welcome. Tel Aviv. Okay, that's Tel Aviv. 1917, that's the British Conquest. We mentioned that already after World War One. Is that the end of the empire? Yes, the Ottoman Empire would have ended there. And now we have British control of the land of Israel. 1922, a mandate to establish a state, the British Mandate, which uh, was a document that set the stage for the establishment of a Jewish homeland shortly after the capture of the city by General Allenby. In fact, there's a bridge that's named after him. 1925, just of interest, the culture is being established, and as an example of that is in 1925, Hebrew University was established. So there's enough Jews, there's enough young people that needed education, etc., and this is just indicative of development of culture and the whole Jewish culture. 1929, there was a Hebron massacre. Jews were killed by Arab militants. So they're in the land, but they're not at peace. 33 through 39, the fifth immigration. So there were several other in between. I could have given you some of them. For example, in 1904 to 1914 was the second one, mainly from Russia and Poland, 32,000. In 1919 to 1923, the third Aliyah, you could say, those are from Russia as well. And when was the fourth one? Fourth one, 24 to 32, these came from Poland. And then we have the fifth one, 33 to 39. And these were from Germany, 230,000. This is shortly before the war, so they already immigrated. Yeah, they were already being persecuted. Mm-hmm. And in 1933, that's when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. 35 Jewish rights in Germany, Germany rescinded. And 38 German Jewish synagogues burnt down in Germany. So many of them came from Germany and Europe as well, not just Germany. 39 through 45, the Holocaust well-known, 1947, a U.N. proposal after people began to realize the suffering of the Jews. We have a worldwide consensus that the Jewish people should have their own homeland. So the U.N. proposed the establishment of an Arab and Jewish state, that early two-state situation, in the land and the land was partitioned. When they started calling in Palestinians instead of Arabs. That started, it's early. Uh, it came in the Byzantine period. 
during the Byzantine period, they changed the name to Syria, Syria, Palestina. The land of Israel was called Syria, Palestina. And from that, eventually, they began to call it Palestine. When did it, was it? What year was that? I don't have a year there, but it would be during that Byzantine period, or probably around the 500s, somewhere in there. Yeah, very early. And the birthday of the modern state of Israel, May 14th, 1948. They declared independence. The next day, the Arabs did not like that. They attacked. So on May 15th, the armies from Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia united in attacking this newly born baby of a nation. It's the Seven Days War? No, no, no. No, this is not yet. Not yet. No. No one one has an explanation. I have not read anywhere how the Israelis were able to hold them off and actually defeat them and maintain. (laughs) They didn't have an army. They're a new state. They barely, they didn't have a government, really. Now, they did a lot of preparation ahead of time, but really... They're one day old, and they're attacked by five Arab nations, and the Israelis are able to push them back. No one has an explanation. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) there is an explanation. 1949, after the establishment, this is modern Israel, the IDF was established. So here you are two years later, and now they're beginning to organize a military. The IDF is their armed forces. That was not done until two years later. So it's basically people just gathering together and getting their own weapons and organizing amongst themselves to repel the Arab nations who had by far very superior military modern equipment, yet they were able to repel them. 48 to 52, mass immigration, mass immigration from Europe and from Arab countries in the Middle East. 1967, this is the Six-Day War, 1967, Six-Day War. There's a lot of stories of some of these immigrations, by the way. Some of them were miraculous as well. Just how did they get out of these countries? How did they organize to get transportation? Because they were opposed as well, and it was not an easy thing, and a lot of things had to come together, and they did, so that several were able to get out. The Six-Day War was against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And in terms of the military firepower, they were outnumbered 30 to 1. Another situation that people don't have an explanation for. How does Israel win in six days? Because they're still developing a military. And all of these nations have had military equipment and trained Forces for years, yet Israel prevails. And just a photo of the Wailing Wall, where Jews pray, which I just show that just, even though they're praying and don't even know the Lord yet, the Lord is honoring his contract. Mm -hmm. 1973, since Jews observe the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the Arabs thought that would be a strategic time to attack. And in fact, the plot was discovered and the Israelis took steps to take care of that as well. But there were many Jewish casualties. It lasted three weeks and it was with Syria 
and Egypt, Yom Kippur War. 1979, we have the Egypt Peace Treaty. They realized that the time had passed for them to dominate militarily, so somehow they wanted to obtain land through a peace treaty. Yes, yeah, that was 79. Yeah, this is uh, the Egypt-Israeli peace treaty signed by Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Yeah, that's that was Carter, Menachem Begin, and Sadat. Menachem Begin was the Israeli Prime Minister, and Anwar Sadat from Egypt. Almost ten years later, we have an intifada or internal uprising. Mark, I just have to think, you know. Never has anyone ever recognized Israel as a state. And I don't know the particulars on the Egypt peace treaty, but Menachem Begin and Sadat, equal people, signed a peace treaty, which meant at one point in time, at least Egypt, of course, that's why he was assassinated, but right. someone ex- accepted Israel as a legitimate nation in order to sign a treaty. Well, the United States did. <laughs> I mean, the United States signed it with Sadat, but Menachem Begin? Well, I, they, I think they all signed it, but... I don't know that Egypt accepted that, but they signed it. And now they have different tactics to try to get Israel out of the land internally, primarily uh, terrorism, beginning somewhat in 1987. So that kind of brings us pretty close to today. And just to give you an idea, these are statistics that I just downloaded this week in terms of population to see where things have turned out. There's the largest concentration of Jewish people now in Israel. And this has only been more recent, where now there's 6.11 million Jews in Israel. Compared to the United States, and by the way, the numbers in the United States have been diminishing because people go and they've been diminishing in other parts of the world as well. So they're coming from different parts to end up in Israel. USA, 5.43. France, way down. And then after that, they're in the decimals there, just to give you an idea. Those are the most populated areas today of Jewish people. Tony, we have population between Sao Paulo and South Africa. Brazil. I think Brazil's like, what do I get there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think there's another one and then Brazil. So it's like number nine. I mean, whenever you're walking around, that's, you know, you Well, but it's less than 0.18 million. That's the percentage? No, no, no. Those are millions. In millions. 6.11 million, Argentina, 0.18, or 180,000. Because that 0.18 is 180,000, right? Yes, 180,000. All right. Looks like the USA has benefited from having the Jewish people. The blessings flowing over from them to to us. Well, we have been favorable to them up until this last previous Obama administration. So the largest concentration, as I said, is Tel Aviv, 3.21 million. New York City has diminished. In fact, several years ago, New York City was the leader. Well, not several, but a few years ago. But now it's down to two, a little over 2 million. Even Haifa, almost a million in Haifa, more than Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 0.69, pretty close. Now, those aren't large cities, so yeah. in terms of um, millions. yeah, Percentage-wise. Percentage-wise, very high, mm-hmm. yeah. Los Angeles, 0.66, another uh, Israeli city, Beersheba, 0.38, or 380,000. Just to give you a feel. Oh, yeah, I'm looking over just here. It says like 60,000 in Sao Paulo currently, and then 150, the whole country. 150,000? 150,000, so that'd be 0.15. I think there's another country after Argentina and then Brazil. Can't remember what that is. 
So, what God is doing today, and there's lots of stories in terms of the immigration, in terms of the wars, in terms of just other circumstances, that basically it, Israel today is a modern miracle. It should not exist. And let me give you some reasons here. Against all odds, in spite of circumstances, we have a nation. And this is just a contrast. Israel, with the surrounding 22 Arab nations, I think that number there, let's see, includes Turkey, I believe. Turkey's in the process of kind of moving away from, well, not from the Arabs, but... I've got some other statistics, I think, that don't include Turkey. But anyway, we'll get to that. In terms of land, these are in square miles. Israel, only 8,551 square miles. Now, that might vary depending on how much land they give away, but essentially that's the number. In comparison to the surrounding Arab nations, 22 of them, 5.25 million square miles. 8,000 as opposed to... Five million. To give you a comparison, the size of New Mexico, 121,000, 14 times the size of Israel. Here's where my engineering <laughs> background shows up a little bit. It's about the size of New Jersey. Now, we're not as familiar as New Jersey, but people back east. So it's tiny. It's, it's tiny. tiny. It's Very tiny. little. <laughs> 8,722, so only... 200 or so, less than 200 square miles larger than Israel. And just on a graphic here, here's the Arab world in yellow and Israel in blue, just to give you a feel. This whole fight, tiny little land. There's the target on God's back. That's right. Surrounded. Give you a perspective on the size. (laughs) Great Britain is an island, but all of Israel would fit in it. And it barely shows up on the United States there. I think that's exaggerated. United States, New Jersey, smaller than that. Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be the scale. It says map drawn the same scale. Israel down in blue. If you want to know about India and Australia, there you got the comparison. In terms of population, uh, this is another map that shows the Muslim population. That's 2014. So you can see the darker numbers: 90 to 100 percent Muslim. These are all surrounding Israel. So as the colors get more light, the percentages go down, but they're still way, way, way up there. 21 Arab countries. The land is 50 times the land size of Israel. In terms of percentages, the in blue, that, that's Israel. One-sixth of one percent. Population 800 times the surrounding lands. And you know about the vast oil reserves in all of these, well, not all of them, but most of them, Saudi Arabia particularly, Iraq, Kuwait, etc. In terms of Israel, they're discovering oil, but in comparison, very, very little. They've discovered oil offshore. This is interesting. There's 1.2 Arab-Israeli citizens, and they live far better than any Arabs in the rest of the Arab world. They have equal citizenship. All Israeli citizens, including the Arabs, have freedom. There's no freedom anywhere else in those Muslim countries. In fact, in terms of democracies, there are zero apart from Israel. Israel is the only democracy in the, uh, in the region. 
Ready? Yeah, just in terms of what Jackie's telling us from, um, when you talk about the freedom that they, it sounds like you can't get in there. What was she talking about? It had to do with residency. You couldn't get, you could go on a visa, but a very temporary, it was a temporary visa, but live there as a citizen. And you can't, unless you were a Christian. If you, you can't proselyte, you don't have yeah, freedom in Israel. Yeah. But that's, that's getting in. But in terms of citizenship, they, Arabs have just the same amount of freedoms as any other person. In other words, there's no discrimination. And they have no representatives in the Knesset. In the Knesset, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Arab citizens that live in Israel live far better than any Arabs anywhere else or any Muslims living anywhere else. And here's some more statistics. There's the land. I gave you that. The population for Israel, 7.8 million. Actually, that number is a little higher. I forgot to change that. I think it's 8 point something. But that population includes the Arabs and others, as opposed to 372 million Arabs surrounding. The religion in Israel, predominantly Judaism, obviously, and exclusively Islam in Arab countries. In fact, it's against the law in general to be anything other than Muslim. The goals of Israel is survival. Survival against all odds. The goals of the Arab nations is the annihilation of the Israeli nation. Isaiah seemed to hit it right on the head. He says, who has heard such a thing? Isaiah 66, 8. And the answer is, he's talking about, in the context, remember this is the last chapter, so it's talking about the regathering and Israel in the land, Israel in the, essentially in the millennial kingdom. Who has heard such a thing, that such a nation could come about after its background and history? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? If Isaiah were a date setter, he could have said one day, May 14th, 1948. <laughs> Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. In other words, eventually she became a nation. And this happened in one day. Interesting. So it's a miracle. There has never been a people or a nation that has come back to the land with the same bloodline Descendants of Abraham, same heritage, you can include heritage and culture, with the same language, Hebrew language, there's culture, same religion. And in this case, after 2,000 years of being scattered all over the world. Now, one of the purposes, and, and these people have been persecuted and attempts to annihilate them, really, over their history. I gave you some of that last time. All that served was to preserve them because the nations would not intermarry with them and dilute that bloodline. That brought them together and united them in different communities all over the world. They were outcasts. So God used that to preserve their bloodline, their heritage, their language, their culture, and their religion such that there would come a day when they would come back to the, the, the land and would establish themselves as, as a nation. So it's a modern-day miracle. And you can use a lot of the numbers and information apologetically and explain, you know, ask somebody, how do you explain this? How do you explain a people preserved over this period of time and coming back 
and being able to exist much like they did 2,000 years ago, much like they did thousands of years even before that, or hundreds of years before that. So that's Israel before the tribulation. The exciting thing is God is working a work in the nation today that some of the prophecies have been fulfilled and others, like the Ezekiel 37 passage we looked at, that still have an aspect that has not been fulfilled today and will not until the next phase what God is doing. And the next phase will be what God is going to do during the tribulation. This slide makes you think about the coming. It does? Why? Yeah. Oh, rulership of David? Mm -hmm. Yep. So let's take a look at Israel during the tribulation. There's lots of prophecies we'll pull together. And some of these, like I said, will come back to them in relationship to other areas of eschatology. But in terms of Israel itself, let's look at several categories. I think I've got these on your outline sheet. Everything that we looked at up to this point was on the outline sheet I passed out last week. Now this is the new one today. What kicks off the next phase of Israel's history is a covenant that is very specific and I don't know if I want to look at I'm, I'm going to give you some detail on this later on, and I don't want to repeat too much. But this covenant in Daniel chapter 9, in fact, let's, let's just re, at least read it. And then uh, we'll come back and I'll give you more detail on it. Immediately makes me wonder what the preterists, when you bring up this covenant, they spiritualize all these. They have to spiritualize all these passages. There's no way that they can take them in their normal grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation. Daniel sees a vision. Uh, we'll come back to that vision, but the end of it in verse 24, he is essentially laying out the rest of Jewish history. This is the Jewish calendar, the Jewish time frame, and in terms of that history. Jim, read 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your your holy city to finish the transgression, to to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, he's summarizing the plan of God to deal with the issue of sin. The issue of sin is going to be dealt with within a time frame of 70 Shabuas. If you do a word study on the Hebrew Shabuah, that word is, it, yeah, it's, it's seven somethings. It's not specific. Now, it's most often seven days, but there are some passages that <coughs> indicate that it's seven years. In this context, he's talking about seven years. So seven times 70 is 490 years of Jewish history, that is all that remains, where God is going to basically deal with the issue of evil. He's going to deal with the future of Israel within that time frame. Now, he's going to break it down now. And Sheila, why don't you read verse 25? Know, therefore, and understand sometimes. Okay. What he's predicting here with a specific time frame, and I'll give you all the numbers later, but within, uh, what does it say, 60 or 62 plus what? 
He had seven at sixty-nine. After sixty-nine Shabuas, which would be sixty-nine times seven, four hundred eighty-three. Very good. Oh, you must be an engineer. I just thought this not too long ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he's not, very good. That's why I'm like, ah. Yep. Very good. There's gonna occur something. Something's gonna happen in that from, and it gives the starting point. And the issue is which decree, and it's probably a decree that was issued in 444 by Artaxerxes, and、uh, we'll, I'll give you more of the detail later on. But something's going to happen there. It will be built again with plaza, etc. Well, let's read on.、Um, you want to read Vivian verse 26. <laughs> Then after the 60s, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, and, the, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be desolation. So, when he refers to the sixty-two, he's assuming you're adding the seven. So he gives us a precise time frame where Messiah is going to accomplish some of the things that are mentioned in verse twenty-four. And when Messiah accomplishes them, in fact, the cutting off of Messiah is the crucifixion, basically, and. By the crucifixion, he's going to deal with this atonement and other things in there. But anyway, he gives us some more detail. The city will be destroyed and the sanctuary. And in that time, in that time frame, there is somewhat of a gap implied, at least. And then in verse twenty-seven, Eric, do you want to read that one? And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. One more week. Now, historically, sixty-nine of those weeks have been completed, and they were completed with the cutting off of Messiah. In fact, people have calculated that on Palm Sunday, the week before the Christ was crucified. That ends that sixty-nine weeks. There's one week left, but if there's a gap implied, he's talking about a future firm covenant for one week for seven shabuas or seven years in this case. And then there's something going to happen in the middle. We'll talk about that later. And I think Jesus ties in the Olivet Discourse some of his events that he's describing to this particular passage. That's the covenant that kicks off a seven-year period of time. That starts the Jewish eschatological clock to ticking again. It's not the rapture. In fact, we're talking about Jewish eschatology. In Jewish eschatology, there's no rapture. That's a mystery. So sometimes people tie everything to the rapture. Well, I leave a little bit of a gap. We don't know. Be minutes. It could be hours. It could be years between the rapture, which the arrows represent, and this covenant. The covenant. The moment that covenant is signed, the clock starts ticking. Is the covenant. I mean, who are the parties? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the basis of this seventieth week is this covenant. Daniel nine twenty-seven. The parties. This prince. That we will discover is Antichrist and Israel. It's not God. The covenants we've looked at, God is one of the parties. Israel are, is usually the, the other parties, or like Abraham and his descendants. This one is different. 
the parties Antichrist and Israel. He's described in Daniel as a prince. The length is seven years. That's specified by Daniel as well. We don't know the stipulations. They're not revealed. They're unimportant, apparently. What we do know is this prince is going to break the covenant in the middle. That's what Daniel tells us. He stops the sacrifice, so it's kind of implied that somewhere along the way the temple is rebuilt and the sacrificial system starts out. Yes, and that's probably part... There's some implied stipulations, and one of them is probably permission, if not the temple already being built, or permission to build and permission to worship, but then he breaks it by introducing his own worship. We'll talk about all those details as we get further in. I just want to give you a summary. This kicks off the eschatological clock. That's the main thing we want to note here. The Jewish clock. And the fulfillment of this covenant is future from our time. Future from our time. Now, we can't set a date for it. It's a mystery. And not only is it, well, the time frame is a mystery, but it's also, we believe in an imminent rapture. We'll talk about that. And it'll take place, I think, after the church is removed because God is dealing with Israel. So we have this covenant and during this seven-year period, there's going to be conversions, many conversions. And let's take a look at this. There's several passages that indicate that, so let's read some of them. Let's start with Jeremiah 23, 6, and keep in mind the context of these passages. For example, Jeremiah is written on the occasion of the destruction of the nation. So the nation has no hope. The Jewish people have lost everything. They've lost their temple. They've lost their city. They've lost their nation. But it's in this context that God makes it clear that he is not done with them. This is a discipline. And they have no idea how long all these things are going to take to transpire. But we are assurance that God is going to deal with them. So he says, in his day, Jeremiah 23, 6, in his days, it's capitalized, and I think who's in reference here, and in the context, it's the Lord, Yahweh. In his days, Judah will be saved. There's going to be a future salvation. They've just been devastated. There's going to be a future salvation. Israel will dwell securely. They're out of the land. They're dispersed. But there's going to come a day when they will dwell in the land securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh our righteousness. And there's many other passages that speak of that conversion. Zechariah 13.9. I guess it's your turn, right? Oh, isn't it? Hinata. Zechariah 13.9. While you're looking that one up. Joel 2.32, Mark. Joel 32. 2.32. You got yours? This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Okay. This is late in the history of Israel. In fact, Zechariah is what kind of a prophet in terms of the exile? Post-exilic. It's a post-exilic prophecy. In other words, this is after the exile. And I think it predicts way into the future, particularly chapter 14, but 13 as well. 
and they're going to call on his name. He's going to answer them, and they're they're my people, and the Lord is their God. That's not totally crystal clear, but if you put all the passages together, this is one of the key passages. Joel two thirty two, Mark. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Okay, it ends there. What you have there are predictions of re not only regathering. We saw several that speak of regathering, but these are more in in terms of a spiritual regathering. And you can use that. Ezekiel 37 as well, a conversion passage we looked at last time. And the, the Joel too, that's the context here is the day of the Lord. He's day of the Lord. That, of that's Lord. what's going to lead them to that. Day of the Lord's context, <clears throat> exactly. And by the way, that Joel 2 passage also deals with the fulfilling of the new covenant. So it'll involve the new covenant, regeneration, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, conversion, fellowship, all those elements. This is within that seven-year period of time. Now, the way, and there's debate over the sequence here, it makes sense to me that what God does after the signing of the covenant, he raises up two prophets. And what we want to do is look at Revelation chapter 11. So let's all turn there. The chronology of the book of Revelation, in some ways... We have little notes that give us kind of a time frame. And there's a little debate as to when it all fits in. But if you notice in the first couple of verses, we have a time frame there. And if we understand it correctly, I think two prophets arise at the very beginning. Let's read those two verses. Jim, do you want to read 1 and 2? Revelation 11, 1 and 2. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship, and leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city forty. Okay, see that uh, note there for forty-two months. How many years is that? Three and a half. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see a recurring reference to three and a half years. Here it's in months. Read verse 3 as well, Jim. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. How many years is that? Three and a half based on a 30-day month. Three and a half. So you have it mentioned two ways. I think the first one here pertains to the second half. And I've got some exegetical reasons from the text that I won't get into here. This one in verse 3, the three and a half there, I think makes more sense at the very beginning. Two different time frames, two different identifications in terms of months and days. So we have these two witnesses. They appear to be prophets. And let's read further in the text. Sheila, read 4 and 5. These are the two of them. Fire from their mouth powers their hand to harm them. He must be killed. Okay. But notice something peculiar about these two prophets in terms of how they deal with enemies. Do you want to read on a little bit more, Vivian, 6 and 7? They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall. And they have power over the waters, blood, and to strike the earth with it. 
when they have testimony that, that comes up out of the okay we'll kill them and then we're going to see they're they're raised again as well sounds like a couple of people we know well there's different views when you come to the book of revelation and you there's just these multitudes of views and some of them are way out and we can dismiss a lot of them but just so you kind of get a feel for some of the views some see one prophet representing the nation of Israel another prophet representing the church now this would be from commentators that are not replacement theologians but not necessarily conservative either some say well maybe we have a picture of old testament and then one of them represents new testament well i don't know which which one would represent which these are just views obviously i don't believe in any of these except the last one if not old testament and new testament then another view is a picture of law and grace in other words they're trying to get the totality of bible revelation i guess you we could say old testament new testament law and or law and gospel rather or jewish one represents a jewish witness another one represents a gentile witness another this is a real popular one enoch and elijah because enoch was taken up and didn't experience death so also elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire did not experience death uh this is real popular even with some conservatives but probably the best one is eric's view <laughs> moses and elijah I said Elijah, she said Moses. So oh, they can't get credit. All right. Well, it, it's, it's three and a half years, and James says that he he prayed and it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and he prayed and it did rain. So there's so many connections. There's that, a lot of connections. Yeah, and if you want some of the connections for Moses and Elijah. Does anybody just think it's two witnesses? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay, well, it seems to be the most literal. Well, it is better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But we have more information that might indicate that they might be more specific than just some two obscure prophets. <laughs> and I think all the evidence points to Moses and Elijah, and rather than giving you all the evidence that others give, let's just kind of look at it. We have Old Testament prophecy that seems to indicate that both Moses and Elijah still have the future. and particularly Elijah in Malachi. Malachi seems to indicate a return of Elijah. We also have their unusual so-called deaths, at least Moses died, but there's some mystery there. Right, God himself tried to dig, tried to find him. Right. And Elijah was taken up, so their death, the mysterious element of their deaths, both of them, their experiences have very striking similarities to the descriptions that we have here. Remember Elijah called down fire from heaven. Moses turned the waters into blood in verse 6 and he smote the earth with plagues as often as they desire, it says there. 10 of them in the book of Exodus. And what else do we have there? Uh, Elijah shut the skies from raining and then the Lord said, "Let it rain." Tell them when it's going to rain. So they have similar experiences. And Vivian mentioned the transfiguration. We have both of them at the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about the transfiguration, if you look at Matthew 16, the end of chapter 16, he predicts to the disciples that he is. They're going to see the second coming, or something of the second coming. 
And then in chapter 17, they get a glimpse of what he looks like at the second coming. So he seems to fulfill what he says at the end of chapter 16 by giving them a glimpse of what he appears in terms of second coming, resurrection. He's transfigured. David? I was just as curious, I was thinking about Jude 2, where that, in chapter 6, where Michael's disputing with the devil and arguing with the body of Moses, yeah. You know, maybe if the devil could, by the way, it would. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a dispute there. Yeah. And also in that context, if you remember, remember, I think it's Peter, right, that says, well, let's build some booths and, you know, let's kind of celebrate what's going on here. And then they ask the question, well, isn't Elijah supposed to, you know, we're looking at the second coming. Can we expect Elijah? I mean, is Elijah, what about Elijah? And they just saw Elijah and Moses. So I think in the, the disciples' minds, they're thinking, wow, this is, this is, this is it. The kingdom is right here. And what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? They ask, is Elijah coming? Is this, is this it, basically? And he says, Elijah came. Yeah, do you have the passage here? Oh. 11, 17. Go ahead and read it. Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and I will restore all things. But I will tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. Okay, stop there. Uh-huh. Elijah already came. So there's a sense Jesus is saying Elijah already came. To some extent, Elijah, full, Elijah fulfilled Malachi 3. Keep reading. You got your seat. Yes. Um, but have done to him, pardon me, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. John the Baptist was killed. Also, the Son of Man is going to be killed. Remember, Herod killed Elijah. Keep reading. Mm-hmm. And the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Okay. There's the interpretation. Now, in the context, I missed your reading there, but he also says, Elijah came, but Elijah is yet to come. He does. He says that first. Okay. Yeah. He says, Elijah yeah. is coming and will store all things. Yes. Verse 12. But I say okay. to you that Elijah yes. already, already came. came yeah. All right. Yes, he said he kinda... So he's talking about a future coming of Elijah. And then he talks about a past coming of Elijah, or past tense coming. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. Will, future tense. Mm -hmm. So he is interpreting a passage in a double fulfillment. This is where we get this idea of a double fulfillment. John the Baptist fulfilled the ministry of forerunner that Elijah would fulfill. In that sense, Elijah came. Not reincarnation, <laughs> but he came in fulfillment of the mission and ministry of a forerunner. But there's going to be a forerunner that comes before the second coming, and I think all of the literal and all of the fullness of that coming is what we have here, an appearance of that prophet. So we have the transfiguration. And historically, the Jewish interpretation of the coming, at least of Elijah, is they believe that Elijah will return. And the disciples reflect this as well in that Matthew 17 passage, for one. And I think there's another passage as well. So I take it that Moses and Elijah are the two prophets. And it makes sense to me that they appear like prophets of the Old Testament, like John the Baptist did, and they proclaim the gospel in terms of the kingdom and in terms of the Messiah. 
And I don't know what they will say, but they will communicate clearly to that generation, particularly the nation of Israel. And they will awaken the nation of Israel to the fact that Messiah is about to come. And they will probably say the Messiah already came and we missed him. Messiah is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. So we have, first of all, we have a covenant that kicks off the calendar. And then secondly, we have, I I would put them at the very beginning. They're either the beginning of the first three and a half based on the passage here, verse three, or they're at the beginning of the second half, but it doesn't make sense that they would appear in the middle. So I take it that they appear here because they're going to be killed in the middle after the three and a half years. So I think they awaken the nation of Israel to the coming of Messiah. The first response that they have, stay in the book of Revelation, turn back to chapter 7. Some of the events in the book of Revelation are not in chronological order. I think we do have a time frame for chapter 7, and let's read it. Mark, why don't you start? 7-1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Keep reading. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So we have a sealing of a group of people before this outpouring of judgment. The four winds, I think, are a picture of judgment that's going to come on the earth. That little note seems to indicate that this is before the judgments of the book of Revelation are poured out. And chronologically, it appears that the seals begin at the very towards the very beginning. And then they progress, and then there's others that are come either parallel. We'll talk about the chronology of that as well. But the other, the trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, and other things that take place, they will progress throughout that seven year, seven years. So at the very beginning, and uh, I can't put them all on the same place, so I think what's described in chapter 7 are 144,000 Jews. I would, it makes sense that they would respond to the two prophets. In other words, the prophets proclaim the gospel, 144,000 respond, and they trust in the Messiah. Is, is this the fulfillment of the all discourse where it says the gospel will be spread around? No. Okay. No. That fulfillment, I think, comes as a result of the ministry of 144,000. Yeah, I think chapter 7 tells us that these 144,000 come about. Now, it's not real specific, but it appears that they have a ministry. Implied in the ministry is verse 9. Now, we didn't read from 4 to 8, but basically we have the numbering of 12,000 from each tribe of the nation of Israel. So these are Jewish people, and it makes sense that they're Jewish evangelists, and they're all over the world, and they have a ministry to the nations, to the rest of the world. And verse 9, Jim? After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robe and palm branches were in their hand. They appear to be believers, the white robes. In other words, it's a picture of a right standing. They're before the throne. That takes you back to chapters 4 and 5. That's a heavenly scene, which implies they have died. Now, it doesn't tell us here, but they were probably martyred. And who these people are, they're from every tribe, every nation. I take it from the sequence here, these are the converts of the 144,000. So there's going to be a massive turning to Messiah during the tribulation. The ministry of the 144,000 is to bring the rest of the peoples that will respond to faith. And from that, we have massive conversions. And what would be included in those conversions is other Jewish people, every tribe, including Israel to the point that the nation believes in their Messiah. Not every single one, we'll see that later, but we have massive conversions. The greatest revival that the world will ever see or has ever seen will be this one during the seven-year period. This is the only bright spot of this terrible period of time called tribulation. Eric, you had a comment. They're converting to Christ as the Messiah. As Messiah. But they're not part of the church. No. Very good. Very good. Very good. But they're still very good. The fulfillment of the the covenants. Yes. They're never described with the word ecclesia in the book of Revelation. What word is used to describe them? Saints. Saints. Called saints. But in the nation that was in Israel, you have to say that they're Gentile. Not necessarily. Because 144,000 are Jew. Yes. Everybody else that is saved from all nations, tribes, and what tongues. They have to be Gentiles. Yes, but I would say that the 144,000 are not the only Jews that are saved. In other words, other fellow right, right. Jews would be saved as well. Right. From those 144,000. Okay. So the 144,000 doesn't cap the number of Jews. It's just they have a specific ministry yes. to go out. Yes. And they preach to other Jews yes. and other Gentiles. Gentiles, okay. yep. And <clears throat> remember, they'll be all over the world, too. Mm-hmm. Your question, the fulfillment of Matthew twenty four fourteen that speaks of the gospel spread, the gospel will be continually proclaimed throughout that seven-year period. This is just the beginning of it, and it'll reach everyone. It's going to reach Wall Street. Yep. Reach <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Hollywood. <laughs> yep, it's going to reach everyone. Okay. And as a result of that... We have what Paul predicts in Romans 11, 25-26. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening, that's what's going on today in the church age, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. That's similar to the phrase that Jesus uses, the times of the Gentiles. Until the fullness of the Gentiles, I think the fullness, that's the church age, until the church age is completed. The last Gentile that believes before the rapture. And then 26, and thus all Israel will be saved. All, not absolutely, but all in terms of a corporate, in terms of a national group. The nation will accept their Messiah. The leadership will accept the Messiah, rather than rejecting him like in the first century. All Israel will be saved, just as is written, and this is based on Scripture. The Deliverer, there's going to be deliverance during that time. 
will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. There's going to be a regenerating work, regeneration during this period of time. This is after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is during that seven-year period. Every Jew reading that would know, well, this is the next eschatological event uh, of Jewish history is this terrible period of time, this tribulation period. So that that ties back into the 924, mm-hmm. where the, some of the things that he's going to do, yes. Jesus completed some of them on the, on the cross, but there's more to come yes. uh, in the future. Yes, there's going to be a deliverance in the future. It's going to be both spiritual and physical. Let's take a break, and we'll come back and look at what happens to most of these believers. Mm-hmm.